<laughs> oh, you. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to the Sopranos Podcast. This is a very <laughs> special episode today. It already is. It already is. It's extremely special. I'm your host, Chris D'Amato. You've uh, heard from me 13 episodes now. I'm here with our usuals, Paul Mantini and Jordan Hugh. But we also have a very special person joining us today. This person has been with the podcast behind the scenes for a long time now, and in my opinion is one of the many reasons the podcast stuck together and, and functioned as well as it did. So we wanted this person to join us for this retrospective, and this person is my wife, Lily. Lily D'Amato. How are you, Lily? Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. We're... It's it's so cool we got Lily on the podcast. Lily's like one of our favorite people, so it's just cool that she joined us for one of these. Ah, shucks. Yeah, yeah finally. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Lily is here. Lily, uh, I think a good way I want to start this off, okay, I'll start this off properly by explaining what it is to the audience that we're doing. Uh, this is our season one retrospective. This is a place for us to just kind of have a very casual conversation about season one of The Sopranos in its totality. We're going to give you some favorites, our top three in various different categories, music choices, characters, episodes, and we're also just going to touch down on things that we took away from the season, how we rate the season overall as one big story. It's going to be great. We're going to have a lot of fun with this one. And I think also a little bit of our story, maybe how we came about this podcast, and just a little bit of, uh, you get to go backstage with us this this episode. Exactly. It's an all-around hootenanny of behind-the-scenes fun and Sopranos fun. A jamboree, one might say. Ooh, a jamboree. Mm. A veritable cornucopia, if you will. Yes. yes. A ballyhoo. <laughs> So, here we are, guys. Uh, I think the first thing I want to do, just because this is Lily's first time joining the podcast, is on the introduction episode, we all kind of gave our first impression, first moment, first connection to The Sopranos. So to start us off, I just want to get Lily uh, on board, and anybody we bring into this podcast, I think this is a great first question. What was your first exposure, experience, memory, whatever? What drew you to The Sopranos? Oh, okay. So, uh... Senior year of college, Chris and I started hanging out, and I think a prerequisite of, of spending any time with Chris D'Amato oh, yeah. is you have to see The Sopranos. <laughs> so this was a very casual hanging out, you know, nothing nothing too was, crazy yeah. or romantic between us yet. So this was not Sopranos and chill. This was, this was uh... not Sopranos and chill. <laughs> no, okay. it wasn't. Yeah. It was... Mostly just Sopranos. I would never mussy up the Sopranos with any chill. All right. <laughs> and then uh, we graduated, and Chris and I kind of had this interesting on again, off again for a few months. And we'll talk about that in a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would say maybe eight months or even a year later, you know, we're finally together. We're an official couple, and Chris says, we need to re-up. You need to start watching. We'd only seen season one. So uh, rather than re-watching season one, Chris drew out an entire family tree for me to show exactly how everybody connected and where were their storylines. And um, it ended up helping out a lot. And so we started back up again with season two and ended up watching the same thing, the whole, the whole shebang. So, you know, a, a lot of my relationship with Chris D'Amato is really wrapped up in The Sopranos. But anybody who knows Chris 
will know that that's kind of everyone's relationship with Chris. <laughs> yep. Is it's such an important thing to him. It, it, Thank it, you. It's this baseline of to be Chris D'Amato's friend, you really gotta <laughs> gotta talk Sopranos. You gotta know what you're talking about. And if you don't, he will be the one to watch every single episode with you. I will do it, and I've done it with many friends. Watched yes. every single episode. I want the listeners to know though that when it comes to Lily. I did have to pay the iron price to get through The Sopranos, and I watched every single episode of Sex in the City. He did, and we would go episode by episode. Oh my God. And what was really interesting about watching them together is that you really realize that both Tony Soprano and Carrie Bradshaw are anti-heroes of their own story. It ended up being really interesting. I like mm. that. Also, uh, from a historical perspective, those shows used to air together. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of must have been interesting. It's just kind of like a, hey, what was it at the turn of the, the millennium, you know, there? Right, right. I'm a little jealous because Chris hasn't made a family tree for me in years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a family tree today, Paul. Oh, 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 hey, hey, yo, So, The Sopranos, season one. What a f- fucking season of television guys wow, wow, wow. i've heard it described by people close to me as maybe a perfect season a lot of people we're not going to do spoilers even in the retrospective the casual retrospective but a lot of people say season one is their favorite and the best hard to argue i'm not i i my favorite season is is actually not one but one might be as close to perfect as as one gets uh, for a television season for the most part At least a 9 out of 10, if not a 10. I agree. What I actually like particularly about season 1 is that it is kind of contained. Other than the issue of whether or not Pussy is working with the government, everything is resolved pretty much by the end of the first season. You could just watch season 1 and stop and feel fulfilled and have a cathartic experience. And on that note, Jordan, I would even go further and say that if it never caught on with the public and they never approved a season two, it still would have been regarded as one of the greatest. Like, it would be like, it would, it would be one of these shows, I don't know, I, I think Sopranos is better than Firefly, so don't get mad at me. It would be like one of these Firefly shows that would have a devoted cult following of people that are like, this is one of the greatest things ever, you have to watch this. Yeah, Freaks sure. and Geeks is one of those too, and it, it never actually ended. I agree. I would even count Twin Peaks, which was just a two-season show, but mm-hmm. similar thing. Or even Deadwood, which was a three-season and done that kind of had cult fans burning the candles bright mm-hmm. for years after. I think that one of the, of, among many properties, I don't think there's really a false note anywhere in the first season. And I also think that it's one of those first seasons, not unlike Dexter, where it really sets a high watermark at the outset. And one of the smart things, I know we don't want to do spoilers, one of the things that they did with season two that is smart is they didn't try to do season one over again. Mm. Because they knew they couldn't. They right. can't. They, they couldn't just do stuff with Livia again that worked similarly without it being repetitive. They couldn't, they couldn't have the same relationship with Tony and Uncle Junior. So actually, I think one of the things that informed season two being so wonderful and the show going forward is that they always tried to do different things. And one of the reasons that they had to was because what they had set up in the first season was, I think, and, and still think today, was very hard to top. I agree. I also think it's evident in Soprano season one that there is a structure 
but there is not necessarily a formula that even really can be repeated in an effective way. We have seen countless shows, countless prestige dramas in particular, where each season is basically a rehash of the season that came before it. Who's the new bad guy? How do our characters respond to this bad guy? Someone important dies, etc., etc. That's kind of just checking off the boxes. Again, no spoilers, but when we get to season two, three, four of The Sopranos, etc., um, they're not just going to keep repeating themselves in this way. In fact, they'll do some things that are really divergent and make the fan base a little bit divisive about certain directions the show goes in. Yeah. They never play it safe. They never will play it safe. This first season in and of itself wasn't safe, but it hit. It was lightning in a bottle, but they they, they do not rest on those laurels going forward. Thoughts on season one as a whole, Lily? Oh, you know, I, I agree with your sentiments. It's it's really something special. You really get a, a good amount of every character so that it's very satisfying that way. Um, but we know that there's more to come as well, which is which is excellent. That's a good point you bring up, Lily. It's very balanced. It's obviously Tony Soprano's show. He's obviously our main character. It's not something like Oz where you're kind of spending equal time with everybody. But short of Tony being the centerpiece, it feels balanced. Like there, you get just the right amount of all the other characters. You get the right amount of Carmela, the right amount of Melfi, the right amount of Livia. Sometimes Liv Livia looms large over the season, obviously, Many episodes. She's in one scene. Mm -hmm. Really amazing. What a presence, uh, Nancy Marchand. We're gonna get into characters and performances, but you know, when I think of season one in its place as a whole, I think of Livia. I absolutely do. Another thing about this season is that it seems to me that everything is perfectly placed. Here's an example. I believe in episode three. Tony is waiting in Melfi's waiting room, obviously, and he's dressed in a suit, and he's reading the paper, and he sees the painting. And This is the barn painting, right? Yes. Yeah. Denial, anger, acceptance. And he starts talking quite confidently in the session that follows about what the painting means. One of my favorite lines from the season is, um, Hey, asshole, we're from Harvard. And what do you think of this spooky, depressing barn in this rotted-out tree? <laughs> Notice that that isn't in the first episode. It's not in the second episode. It's in the third episode, which is where Tony has become at least a bit more comfortable in this framework, more comfortable in the room with Melfi, to express that in that way. It's Everything is placed, I think, in the right spot for the trajectory and these characters' development. It's not until episode 11, months into therapy, when Tony is confronted with this question of whether or not Pussy Bompensero is a traitor, and now his expertise and understanding of psychological deconstruction has gone even deeper. And that's where it needs to be for that story to be ratcheted up to that 11th decibel of tension. So all these, and these points and these value differences of where things are placed are not placed frivolously. They're done smartly and surgically, and it all adds up to a season, again, I don't think a false note anywhere. Therapy is such an important part of the season, too. The show starts with Tony and Melfi's waiting room and his relationship with Melfi. Let's talk about Tony in these various roles. Tony has a lot of different... He's, he's kind of the pinwheel in the center. He's a lot of different... Let's talk about Tony and Melfi, their relationship throughout the season, where it starts, where it ends up, what happens in the middle, how they really feel about each other. Uh, it's a complex relationship. It's an interesting relationship. We know when we see a gangster drama, we're going to see a gangster and his wife. We know we're going to see the gangster and his kids. We know we're going to see the gangster and his other gangsters. But a gangster and his therapist, now that's where the show really sparkles in a unique way. Let's talk about Tony and Melfi. 
So I think The Sopranos, I, I don't know if it intended to do this, but it's actually a ringing endorsement for therapy. <laughs> I think, I, I hope no one will take this unkindly, I think men have a hard time with therapy, maybe especially Italian men. And this just goes outside of being any anyhow, you know, involved with organized crime. But it's very emasculating to see a therapist occasionally. I actually think everyone should be in therapy to some degree. I think therapy is wonderful. But I always remember men like my dad or like my grandfather who'd be like, you know, you're essentially like a, a weakling somehow if you go to see a therapist. Like yeah. you're, a, you're a pussy. You're a, a mental midget. Right, I uh, is the idea. I've been in therapy, and I have a little bit of that reaction. Not so, I my my brain knows better, and I but that first first gut reaction when somebody tells me, "Oh, I'm going to therapy," it's like, "Oh, why are you telling me that?" I know. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's weird. Um, I remember even mentioning like maybe going to see a therapist to my mother. I I've since not gone. By the way, I would like to go, but um, she said you don't need therapy. You just need good friends, and I said that's not really the same thing, is it? Um, so there there is. Uh, therapy, going to see a therapist, is still stigmatized uh, decades after The Sopranos. And um, this show, I think, opened the door to showing people like, hey, you can do some really amazing things in therapy. It's just nice to have that. That's an amazing point. You just need good friends. Imagine if Tony can just kept going to his friends. <laughs> Who are your friends? Who yeah. are your family? You know, not everybody's yeah. blessed to have insightful friends who know how to walk you through something. And when you do, yeah. even if you do... They're still a little in it, and it's not their responsibility to help you that way, the way a therapist does. But imagine if Tony opened up to Paulie or Syl. Yeah, like, what the fuck is Paulie <laughs> Walnuts going to do for your panic attacks? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be maybe some, create kind a few. Of, some kind of suck it up, right? You know, get yeah. over it. Right, but... Silvio admits as much in the last episode. It would right. be better if we could admit to each other these were stressful times. It'll never happen. That's not part of their culture. And it's one of the things that makes Melfi continually fascinating as a character is that she doesn't quite fit um, mm -hmm. in this world. There are ways in which she has these commonalities, but if this show is allowed to have a conscience, I'm not sure that it does, um, she's the closest thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is continually fascinating. And it's a, it, it's a very interesting relationship, again, that I think is hard to top after this season, wherein he meets her, he's dealing with these cultural ideas that are old school backwards whatever that that aren't allowing him to open up as much but she's starting to help him she's helping him understand a number of things and as if those more ethereal qualities weren't clear enough by the end i think she has saved him literally mm. i agree so in, t in terms of tony and melfi's relationship bringing it back to to your point chris i think it, it's arguably the most fascinating relationship on the show it has its own gorgeous arc that takes some interesting turns. I don't know that we know initially when Tony first walks into the office how much he is attracted to this woman. We certainly know by the uh, early to mid part of the season that he's fallen quite in love with her. Uh, not just a sexual infatuation, but something uh, deeper and more beyond that. And that would be one thing, but I think what the show does, because the writing is so clever and deep and, and has wonderful subtext, is that He's more than just a patient to her as well. I don't know that she is in love with him, but this is someone she often thinks about. This is someone that has, I will use the word, uh, taken up a piece of her heart, not necessarily to mean romantic love, but 
Tony is it becomes someone she cares about deeply beyond the relationship of doctor and patient by the end of the season. I would argue that Tony's not in love with her. I just don't know that he's ever met a woman or spent any time with a woman like her. Right? You're soft like a mandolin, mm. he says, right? Every single woman, Meadow included, is very brazen, very harsh, will tell you like it is with no consideration of your feelings. And Tony doesn't know what to do with that, mm. right? But have a some kind of lust or curiosity about that. And I think it's almost similar for Melfi. She's never met anybody like him. And it's, it's a part of her, I don't culture i guess mm. that she hasn't tapped into especially as we see how her family reacts to that side of being italian yes. and so it's almost that you know the way the way a woman would latch on to the bad boy but not really be in love with them or or even have more of a nothing real of a more than a curiosity of what would it be like to be a part of that and we definitely see her wrestle with that later on in the season and I, I i will respect the no spoilers series rather not season um and, and like i said i'll respect no spoilers but she really she has that curiosity for for good and so much so that she can't even hold it in when it comes up with her family right oh you should see my patient i i, I don't remember the direct quote um, you wouldn't want to you, say guinea in front of him. I have yeah, a patient you wouldn't want to say. Yeah. She couldn't wait to get that out and then realizes immediately what it was a what a bad idea it was as a professional and as a woman in front of her family knowing how they would react to that, right? It was just a bad idea. So this almost turns into her own little secret too, which is also very intriguing. So you're dealing with these two people who maybe think they're feeling love, but it's not. It's other emotions, but especially Tony has no toolbox. And I think you'll hear me say this a bunch throughout this podcast episode, but Tony doesn't have the tools in his toolbox to deal with that feeling or deal with a woman like that. So much so that he conjures up his own, right? Mm -hmm. And Isabella. Mm -hmm. Wow. So for you, you don't think that uh, Tony's feeling towards Melfi can constitute genuine love? Or actually, maybe the more interesting question for you, Lily, specifically, is from a woman's perspective, what are Melfi's feelings for Tony as a man? Sure. We'll start with, with Tony as love. I mean, who am I to say who's in love, who's not? I just think that, especially in season one, it's so one-sided, right? Think about a relationship of a patient to their therapist. Mm. He's not asking her, he doesn't know anything about her other than she's soft, she's nice to him, right? She will she's call, Italian. She's Italian. <laughs> she'll call him out, but not in a way that makes him feel threatened. And he, actually, sometimes she does, right? Especially when she brings up the fact that, hey, your mom put a hit out on you and you should probably be you know, opened up to that. Um, but but she doesn't take that sledgehammer point of view, but he doesn't know anything about her. How can he love her? Mm. He's He mentions in that scene where he's saying, I love you, one of his justifications for it is, I think about you all the time, I dream about you. But the imagery of the dreams doesn't support his point. It supports Lily's because he's projecting onto her the image that he wants. He doesn't know her. Right. right. Well, it, it, there's a clue in the episode Pack Soprano with uh, Tony's quote. This psychiatry shit. Apparently what you're feeling is not what you're feeling. And what you're not feeling is your real agenda. You know? That's very true. 
uh, at least in the context of this show, that there, there's a good deal of projection going on here. Self-projection and projection of inner desires onto the other. It's a very complex and fascinating relationship. Yeah. And then to your other point, Jordan, you know, Melfi with, with Tony, I think it's that danger. You know, she's never had anybody in her chair like him. It's, it's not only titillating to her as a woman, but I think as a psychiatrist and as somebody who, you know, this is a whole new brand of research she's never had. And everybody, I hope this isn't two spoilers or, you know, I'll make a clean cut so you can cut this out, you know, throughout the series, but starts with her ex-husband says that this is, there's no hope here. You know, so it's almost like she's chasing her white whale or the impossible dream of I can change him, which is such a, 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 a inherently female thing to do, right? You, mm. you know, even the strongest women in my life, some of them latch on to people they think they can fix. Mm. And Tony is this Mount Everest of that, right? If I can fix him, what will that mean for me? And so it's this fascination with him, with his life. You know, when else will you get to know the gangster and get inside his head? Mm. Don't you ever meet somebody on the street and you're like, man, I wish I could see the, like, you know, e-true Hollywood story on this person because I want to know how you got here. Right. She gets this. There are plenty of people in my life I feel that way. And you'll yeah. I'll never get that opportunity to know this about them because I don't, right? Because I'm never going to ask those questions. She gets to ask those questions of our, you know, the boss of a mob family. How fascinating, right? It's hard to give that up. And it's hard, it's hard to address those feelings herself, even being as emotionally intelligent as Melfi is, because she's never felt this way either. Yeah. Lily, we often talk on this podcast, as you know, because you're, you're a dedicated listener and our biggest fan. Um, <laughs> True. We often talk about the concept of the missing scene, all the scenes mm. that we don't get to see because the show is essentially Tony-centric. Do we think that we're missing any scenes with Dr. Melfi where she fantasizes about Tony? 100%. There's absolutely a, a, a sister scene where she is also having some kind of sex dream with Tony Soprano. A thousand percent. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been at the forefront of her brain in that family scene, right? Because she's not doing that about her other patients. He's definitely tapping into that unconscious sexuality that one, that human beings have. And again, we don't get many shot, many actual scenes of it, as Jordan calls it, the missing scene. But there are a lot of hints that Mm -hmm. there is, there is sexual feeling for, for, for Tony. For one thing, I, I don't even count this as well he's a gangster because she wasn't scared in this moment but when tony kisses her she gently pushes back and says hey we need to talk about this there's not fear there whereas some women might push back and and be gentle out of a fear of saying no to somebody what i see in that moment is her trying to hold the professional line and there's also another moment later in the season uh in the episode isabella when they're having their therapy session in the car after Junior uh, attempts to kill Tony and he's snapped out of his depressive stupor, I made note of this. He touches her face with the back of his hand and, and her reaction isn't, Anthony, that's inappropriate uh, for our, you know, she smiles. She smiles at him and it's like, that's not something you do for a normal patient. If, yeah. I, if I ever touched any of my therapist's faces in a gentle way, even after an attempted hit, there would have been some kind of, hey, you know. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? None of that here. 
Perhaps not as intimate as that, but a scene that really stayed with me after this season's rewatch for this podcast was when Dr. Melfi goes to have dinner at the Cusamanos, and she excuses herself to the restroom. She doesn't like the conversation, and she knows he lives next door, and she creeps up onto the toilet bowl, and she's looking at his house, and that is such an intimate moment. Mm. Uh, and then later, Tony acknowledges it. You saw my house. That There is, yeah. like, talk about dialogue thick with subtext or a yeah. shot. Uh, thick with subtext she had to see it it's almost like she goes there to be alone with him for a moment just to see his house yeah oh yeah there's definitely a curiosity there for sure but she's not in love and mm -hmm. neither is he mm -hmm. if he thinks he is and she's trying not to think she is but i don't think either of them actually are hmm. i think it, i i agree with lily and i think it's all well said particularly given the power of this framework that Tony has never met another woman like this. What other woman, what other person has Tony cried openly in front of? Nobody. Well, I mean, th these are these are immense moments in the pilot. And then another, I'll, I'm, during this retrospective, I think I will talk about this scene again, the scene in the car with Melfi, mm. when he touches her face. And when she presses him on the dream sequence or the hallucination of Isabella as a mother, he's brought to tears again. So there is a kind of intimacy there, um, even as I agree with Lily, that something in the love question is a misapplication of terms, I think. Let's be very clear. Romantic love. Because I think he has love for her, you know, yeah. and I think she has love for him, but they're not in love with each other in a romantic sense. Because again, you know, the big part about Isabella was when she points out that so that this wasn't sexual at all, right? And I think that's a big part is, is again, Tony has every reason to cry about a lot of things in his life, right? Especially his mother. And he's no one's ever cared for him that way. Carmela's decent, but she's still very harsh. Her voice is not anything. You know, Melfi's got this very dulcet um, resonant voice, whereas Carmela and Livia have these very strident voices, right? They're very difficult to listen to. And we love it because it's very funny and a lot comes out of that, but there's nothing really nurturing to Tony about these women. Absolutely. I want to shift gears here a little bit. Uh, I think uh, now might be an interesting time to get into one of our top three categories. Ooh, excited. Mm. Uh, top three. It's the top three song. We're just wow, making wow. it up now as we go. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, top three song. That's, that's That was great. by Visiting Day. Oh, God. <laughs> that's too good for Visiting Day. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is one of the most infinitely quotable shows ever. And this season is certainly sets a precedent for great quotes. So I want to get into favorite quotes here. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, as far as quotes that stick with you and are memorable and funny. I mean, if we were doing funny quotes, it would have to be a top ten list. Uh, but these are just quotes that stuck with you for whatever reason. And I have a top three here. I'll kick us off since this is the first one. I have, uh, we each, I don't know, do you have a top three quotes? I have one. You have one? Great. We each have quotes that we like from the show i have a top three my number three is a junior quote this is gonna sound so silly for a favorites of the season but i'll tell you why in a second but there's a scene in the episode boca where junior and mikey they're having a meeting in the lawyer's office and they order sandwiches they're going over their legal strategy and junior <laughs> says the line peppers and eggs that's what i should have had 
And that's the quote. Uh, the, reason that st- <laughs> <laughs> the reason that stuck with me is twofold. One, up until I saw that scene, first time years and years and years and years ago, I didn't know peppers and eggs was a sandwich. So I was like, ooh, that does sound interesting. Let me get it. And I loved it. And peppers and eggs is a great sandwich that I enjoy. But the reason that's a quote for me, uh, and my, my next two quotes are a little bit more weighted as far as their gravitas <laughs> in the season. But peppers and eggs, that's what I should have had. I say that so often. Anytime there's a sandwich ordering situation, I slip that in there. And it's become a part of my lexicon. I just say that all the time in junior cadence. Peppers and eggs. That's what I should have had. Uh, <laughs> Love it. It's it's just, it's great. I it's now, the... yes, I now order peppers and eggs so I don't have to say it. <laughs> it's, so, it's so good. Lesson learned. I, I agree with Chris. That's a great line. And I love peppers and eggs. Yeah. Uh, what are your number threes or... Uh, so my number three is a Livia quote. Um, it is because we used to quote this in the house all the time. Remember, I started watching this with my parents back in the you know late 90s when the show was out. This was like a thing we would do as a family on Sundays. Uh, the quote is, is really two parts of the same quote. The first is, oh, poor you, oh. right? Which is what she <laughs> says frequently. I'm referring to it specifically in the episode 46 Long, uh, which is the first time it comes up, but then continues to, and we used to just pour this on my mother anytime she would complain about anything superficial but we would we would quote at her then kill me now go on go into the ham and take the carving knife and stab me here now please it would hurt me less than what you just said i think is wonderful i think it's lydia at her most dramatic it yeah. is deeply funny but tony does not laugh this is not funny for him oh, yeah but i think it's a nice a moment with the audience as well because we see that Boy, she's got him wrapped around her finger. She could say anything. He takes it as it is. Even he might be aware that it's overdramatic, but he he doesn't dismiss it. He addresses it. He, in that scene, works so hard with her to try to convince her that Green Grove is a good idea and something she really needs, and this is her reaction. And initially, I kind of dismissed the quote myself as being like, oh, that's just a funny thing we used to say, but the loss of her house and uh, the fact that she gets kind of put into Green Grove and ultimately into the nursing home is really why Livia enacts this revenge yeah. on, on Tony. So actually, this quote ended up with more significance than initially even I thought. I just thought it was a funny thing we said. Mm. That's great. That's a great quote. Great scene, great moment. Might be our best, the best scene in that episode, and I love that episode. Paul, you have a number three? I do. Um, it's not something I expected to write down, but I was looking at some scenes from over the course of the season. There's a scene in Legend of Tennessee, Moltisante, when... Polly comes over to Chris's place and says, this place looks like a sty, all that stuff. <laughs> and the following exchange takes place. Chris says to Polly, you ever think that nothing good was ever going to happen to you? And Polly says, yeah, and nothing did. So what? Um, <laughs> that is, it's a very funny line. It also is The Sopranos. Yeah. It also is this show from beginning to end. There is no structure. There is no plan. If, trage- if life is a tragedy, then it's an absurd one. Mm. Mm-hmm. And... That's it, and that's about as comforted as you're going to be. So it, it has that quality where it is very. Uh, Paulie's line reading is great. Tony Sirico's sensational in this role, and we'll see more of him as he digs deeper over the course of the series. So it's a funny scene, it's a funny line, but I think it also frames pretty nicely what these characters are gunning for in life the answers and the comfort that they are seeking that they're not going to find. 
Would you like to drop your quote? Yeah, I only prepared one. I found this exercise a little overwhelming because there's just so many there's good right. ones. So many good ones. This, is the, this is the one I had, I struggled with the most too. You actually. know, there's just, there's, it's so inherently quotable and do you go profound or do you go the funny route, you know? <laughs> and you'll hear me bring up this moment, the, the larger scene again later. But when, uh, Carmela is finally telling off Father Phil, and she just goes, even if just last week I told you I'm not a big Renee Zellweger fan. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's such a beautiful, passive-aggressive comment that you say just to really twist that knife, right? Yeah. And it's just the way she says it, too, <laughs> just gets me every time, because it's so specific. It is. I, I just love that so much. And I love the whole scene. And again, I'll bring that up in a, a little bit. But. That line, it conjures images of me of Carmela in the nail salon. And like maybe one of the other wives of New Jersey saw a movie with Renee Zellweger. And I can just picture Carmela like, ah, you know, I never liked her. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> and I'm sure that that's something she brings up every time. Every woman has that actress that you feel that way about, right? And it's like, and Renee Zellweger happens to be a very divisive actress anyway i just yeah she is yeah for yeah. no reason she's right. very talented she's very talented she's very she's always good <laughs> always good always good uh but any i digress um i love <laughs> I, I love that scene and i love that line yeah. i love her delivery of it yeah and i'll, I'll call edie falco a goddess until the day i die yeah, she, she is she is uh, my number two line is uh said much later in the season uh it's a tony soprano quote this is one i think for the record books. Uh, this might even be a top 10 of the series quote for me. But just Tony very simply going over in bed with Carmelo and Carmelo supporting him after everything with Junior and Livia comes out. The what kind of person can I be where his own mother wants him dead scene. And he says just very bluntly after just going through the series of events with Carmelo, cunnilingus and psychiatry brought us to this. <laughs> and it's just such a, talking about the absurdity of this tragedy, Paul, as you said, just like, there's a lot of moments to come still in the show without getting into spoiler-specific stuff where something very little, a little razzing about eating pussy, a little, you know, just little jokes, little comments here and there that escalate to life-and-death murderous circumstances. And that just kind of encapsulates it. That's that's season one in a nutshell, man. Cunnilingus and psychiatry brought us to this mess. Yeah, little little comments and gifts are the two most dangerous things to have or give <laughs> on the Sopranos. On the Sopranos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my number two is a quote that we actually did discuss on the show uh, when we did our genetics uh, episode uh, for Down Neck. It is another Livia quote. Uh, eminently, I find her very quotable. Um, and uh, she says... Well, you only remember what you want to remember. Mm. And um, she, in, in the beautiful Nancy Marchand line delivery, kind of does it as a throwaway, but the line really hits. Yeah. And it hits, of course, in the context of that episode in which flashback is used so effectively. But more than that, that is also a quote that is just important to every episode of The Sopranos, especially when you have a character who is invested in therapy and so much of therapy is processing your own memories, trauma, experiences. And I think it's true. Um, we had a great conversation actually in the pre-show of this recording where we were talking about, um, you know, comparing, you know, the plots in The Sopranos to Tennessee Williams plays. 
Tennessee Williams plays are largely plays that are uh, uh, done in, in memory play form, especially the glass menagerie, but also relates to past trauma, overcoming past trauma, remembering the past in a certain way, in a way that you must process it and get it, get past it. Because we see the show largely through Tony's perspective, we are with his version of things and how he remembers them. And to see what he remembers and why and why it was important is fascinating. Mm. And of course, Livia holds a grudge. Um, you know, she sees that her son is in therapy. She takes the most narcissistic interpretation of that, that he is in therapy because of her. And she's right. So good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's that's a critical analysis as far as I'm concerned of this season. Paul? In Boca, which is among my favorite episodes ever of the show, the question of the coach culminates with whether or not Tony will exact mob justice. And Malfi asks in the question that doesn't get an answer, why do you, Anthony Soprano, always have to set things right? It's such an important question, not just in terms of that plot, but in terms of how Tony sees himself, and in terms of how he conducts himself based on that identity. Because when we were discussing, in a completely unrelated episode, I think Pax Soprano, Jordan dug into the import of Tony seeing himself as a provider to the different women, as if there was no way he could not be that thing. And so Melfi, I think, is asking a very important question here of our hero that we've seen in these various manifestations Tony as, quote, death come knocking, that you can't stop him. Mm. But we're seeing a limit to his power. And we're seeing a limit to his ability, I think, to delude himself into thinking that he is this unstoppable form of justice. Um, because that's what the show is, I think, is this character's wrestling with these dark places, these obscure questions. So that was my number two quote, just because of the thesis of what, what we're doing here, and Melfi asking him that direct question. It's another great Sopranos cut, because I think once she asks that question, there is no answer, and it cuts to another scene. Yeah. So I wrote that down just because I knew that we are dealing with it throughout this season and we'll deal with it for another 76 episodes. Oh, very good. My number one quote is from the episode I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano. I believe it's one of the last things said in the entire season. It's Tony having dinner with the kids and Carmela at the blacked out Vesuvio in the middle of this storm after everything has gone down. He says to them, with uh, he raises a toast, someday soon you're going to have families of your own. And if you're lucky, you'll remember the little moments like this mm. that were good. And it's very powerful to me, given what not only this guy has been through this season, to say that, to try to impart that onto his kids. But especially knowing what we know of Tony's childhood, which is probably not filled with very many of these moments. It's amazing knowing what we know about Tony's mother, about how he was raised, about the fact we talked about this when we talked about Down Neck in our podcast, how his family just all seemed to hate him. His sisters hate him. His, his mother is Livia. His father, <laughs> his father just kind of treats him like an appendage or something, you know, like a, more like a burden than, you know, anything, at least from what we see in this episode. And... Tony still is a nostalgic motherfucker. He looks back on the past fondly. He's able to cherry-pick certain elements and, and things like that. And uh, I don't know. I just found it a very powerful way to end the season because ultimately this is something that a gangster wouldn't necessarily... 
say. This is something any dad would say to their family for a toast. Mm. And that sense of normalcy in the world of the mob and the gangster stakes that are in every moment of this show is what the show is about. And I think uh, that's why David Chase chose that as the last line of the season, because there's something that the creators of this show find fascinating in these guys engaging in mundane American activities. And I agree with him. <laughs> it's why I love the show. So sure. that's my number one. And I certainly connected to the moment in pilot uh, after Tony has been taken to the hospital and he's, he's sitting on the exam table. And he's trying to convince Carmela or suggest her, well, we had some good times, didn't we? Yeah. He's obsessed with this idea that they will remember some goodness from him. Yeah. And I think that that calls back to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my number one quote, Lily referenced this earlier, and I want to just repeat it. I think it's some of the best writing in the in the show. He's talking to Dr. Melfi in the office in Pax Soprana. Uh, he's trying to describe what he finds special about Melfi specific, uh, specifically. He's talking about the way that she uh, uh, is not overt in her sexuality. Uh, he's talking about the way she dresses. He says, you know, it's sexy, understated, like you. You play it down. Not only do you play it down, but you're gentle. Not loud, sweet sounding, like a mandolin. And it's the moment right before he will stand up out of the chair, he will walk to her, and he will try to kiss her. Uh, and he, he basically gets there. And um, that line just knocks me off my fucking chair. It really does. Because not only is it just some damn good writing, it's, it's a great moment. It's a, it's a great uh, thing that we've been building to. And it's like, wow, this is his play. And... He's saying something really profound and and sweet and wonderful and I almost would want to say like very un Tony Soprano like but I think it's just we've never quite seen this side of him. Mm. He doesn't say these things to Carmela ever. Yeah, uh, we don't get this kind of romance from him, and this is really genuine. Also, he hits on something so important. We'll talk about this, I'm sure, later in this episode, but there are these these things that elude Tony, right? Higher education and art and philosophy, and, and these things are kind of swimming around him and he keeps trying to grab at them. And the closest he's gotten is, is this person uh, through which the door uh, has been opened for him. And when he calls her a mandolin, we, we like that so much we actually titled one of our episodes this season, Mandolin. He is trying to make this distinction that Lily brought up just earlier. The other women in his life are not like this. They are not this fine thing that sounds sweet. He thinks he finally has the answer to the great big hole right in the middle of him. Mm. Uh, but it's not quite there. That's that's a perfect transition into this quote that I chose because I think that th there is this quality of him reaching for something. And I think it's one of the reasons that I've identified with him even though in so many ways I disapprove of Tony from beginning to end. At the end of the first season, yes, it is in the last episode, when he's realized that his mother, in essence, took out the hit, he's being comforted by Carmela in the same scene, cunnilingus in psychiatry quote. <laughs> and my number one quote is in that scene, Tony says the following, I'll deal with my uncle, and I'll deal with Mikey P, and I'll get some satisfaction, but inside, I'll know. That's an extraordinary line. It is well written. Mm. It also suggests that Tony is going to get revenge on the people who tried to kill him, and he will enjoy it to some degree. <laughs> he will he will live the life live the good life of the gangster. But my mother tried to have me killed. Yeah, and that is going to be with me for the rest of my born days, and he knows it. And that 
is why The Sopranos was different. That's one of the reasons they were able to do anything they wanted in terms of what these characters were searching for and how. And so that's why I chose it, in part because I do like the writing, but also because it's an example of what sets these characters and the show apart. Wow. Well said, Paul. And that's a great transition into the next topic I want to discuss, which is, in my opinion, what season one is really about. Uh, as far as Tony is concerned, where Tony plugs into the world. I think each season of the show puts Tony in a different role in relation to the characters around him. And if I had to pick one role for Tony in season one, it's Tony as son. Tony as offspring, as a person who is responsible for the care of his elders. Uh, in, in particular, in the family side, he's dealing with his mother, and on the gangster side, he's dealing with Junior. So let's talk about Tony as a son to Livia and as a surrogate son to Junior and how that played out in the story. I think Tony is, if nothing else, a good son. He always tries to do right by Livia. He always brings her something. He thinks about her. He's genuinely upset in the episode 46 long to the point where it's the second panic attack he has. Well, sorry, the third panic attack we see in the show, the, the you know second episode we see him having a panic attack, when he's packing up his mom's stuff. He really wants to be a good son, and Livia is just not the kind of mother who can have that kind of son and be grateful for it. Well, uh, she feels no joy. But what's also interesting is, and I think we know, we, we of course we know this. You know, where's Janice? Where's Barbara? Yeah, yes, Janice. And, yeah, Jan Janice <laughs> and Barbara. Yeah, we 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 are caught on these two siblings, Janice and Barbara. They're completely out of the picture. Yeah. Where are they trying to find a nursing home or find a solution? And the first thing, one of the first things she says to him in the first episode is, "Daughters are better at taking care of their mothers than sons." Where the fuck are Janice and Barb? Yeah. What a thing to say this to the guy who's here, bringing you a CD player. She's already isolated them. You know, uh, yeah. well, let's give some credit to these characters, even though they're not with us yet uh, on the show. I I'm think. Gonna give Janice credit. <laughs> well, I can't mention too much about Janice yet, <laughs> but I will say that uh, they have Livia figured out better than Tony does. Tony yeah. wears a great big pair of blindfolds uh, over both eyes uh, when it comes to his mother. He he can't see what she actually does. They saw it and they got away from it. That's a good point. You know, mm -hmm. Tony. I was thinking about this when you had your quote earlier too. Tony really struggles with a lot of cognitive dissonance when it comes to Livia, right? You know, if anybody else said to him what Livia says to him, he'd say like, "Ugh, like brush them off. Like what are the, what are they talking about, right? This is so dramatic. This is so nothing." But when it's your mother, right? He he always holds her up to the pinnacle. It's like he never had that switch, you know, every every I feel like most adults have that switch where you realize your parents are just human beings who are trying to do their best. But as children, you know, we hold them up as our, the pinnacle, right? The, this is your mother, this is your father, right? You honor these people. And he never had that, he must never have had that flip, right? That this is just a normal human being who doesn't have the right to talk to him that way when he's really trying his best. And he really truly is trying his best with this woman, but she just continually hurts him. Yeah. and. Uh, to your point, Lily, I think everyone else on the show sees it but him. Yep. We observe Livia through other characters' eyes. Everyone knows that she's very difficult or, you know, really more than difficult. Carmela acknowledges that, you know, she was warned about marrying Tony because of his mother. And he tells her, oh, don't bring that up again. But it, it's a very real thing. 
when people see Livia, when Artie goes to see her in the nursing home at the end of the season, you know, it, it is with great trepidation. You know, he, he knows he has to watch what he says and how he interprets the hurtful things that she says. We see that even in Friends of Tony when we're at, I think it is, is it Larry Boy's daughter's wedding? Yes. Right? Uh, he knows, uh, listen, just take what she says with a grain of salt, basically because she's psychotic. Uh, when when Melfi tells him, you know, she has borderline personality disorder, he is deeply offended, but we've already seen those symptoms the entire season, and we yeah. know that Melfi's correct. Yeah, everyone sees it, but Tony, even in the pilot, it's not to a very complex degree, but Livia calls with some dramatic, you know, crying, can't isn't coming to AJ's birthday party, and uh, Tony says she needs a purpose in life, and Carmela snaps back, you know, your mother's a lot tougher than you think. We're even getting hints in the pilot that this is not going somewhere Tony will never see coming mm -hmm. until it hits him square in the face. I think it's uh, these ideas that come up for Livia are so compelling because I think in essence, when you boil it down, it's a woman who, as Lily mentioned, can't experience joy. And because her anxieties are, in Melfi's terms, the only things that are real to her, she can't really have any kind of meaningful relationships. The only way she can have any effect or any power is to sow discord. Junior doesn't seem that far gone psychologically, but the framework of the story is such that he is so insecure. Mm. And Tony, of course, is quite manipulative, not unlike his mother, that it leads Junior away from what are very clearly, I think, some fatherly instincts towards Tony, places them in the worst possible place you could with Mikey Palmisi, <laughs> who's as sycophantic as the day is long, and with Livia, and it adds up to the, again, the absurd tragedy of this season. It is fascinating how sad so much of that story is when there's so many funny moments. Mm. But I think that one of the things that was sad for me, particularly in rewatching this season and hearing the perspectives from you guys on it, was that... It really did feel to me like there was another way that Junior's life in particular could have gone mm. Mm. in this framework. Not a, and, and that he was undone, certainly in part by his own insecurities, but also by the, the other factor. Tony is manipulating people from the word go in this show. That's the point. And he's always, always, always from the start using therapy to his own ends and not the broader ends of feeling better as a social being or anything like that. It's about how there's one point later on in the show where he says in therapy, how do you get people to do what you want? <laughs> I mean, th that's, that's always the focus if you're a gangster. So yeah, very well said. Let's transition now into another top three. We got a lot of these uh, today. So the next one I want to talk about is food. Food is such a huge... top three food. Wee top wee three. Bow, bow. It's the top three food. Yeah. All right, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> top three food. Uh, yeah, I mean, we got Visiting Day fucking beat, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah, no, our top uh, three song is, is tits. It's great. <laughs> Take that, Richie Santini. <laughs> uh, so this category, for me, can be either specific dishes. It's like, wow, that looks good. I want to fucking eat that. 
or moments revolving around food. Food is such an important part of the Italian culture. It's, yeah. it, what's, it's what brings everybody to the and table. And it's in every episode. You can't Loaded. find an episode without a food reference or without a food scene. Yeah, it's it's all over the place. People are picking. People are gathering at Sunday dinner. Season one in particular has these Sunday dinner scenes that are just that just sizzle. They're so good. So there's a lot of food all over this show. So let's go through and talk about our favorite moments or food dish. You know, anything revolving around food. Top three. Sure. We might get a couple of doubled up ones yeah, here, and, and that's okay. Yeah. But uh, because I have brought it today, uh, actually, I brought some pastry so that we can enjoy after we finish recording. <laughs> but I've actually brought some Shrugadel with me uh, today, uh, the pastry to enjoy. Important in the show in two episodes, right? So, of course, the more famous scene is when Chris Moltisanti goes to the bakery. He's trying to get some Napoleon, some Shrugadel, whatever, bring it to the guys. They give him a hard time. We get kind of a rehash of the... Uh, the, the business in Goodfellas where he shoots off the kid's foot yeah. and he gets the pastries and he, he takes off. Um, but I think an equally good moment is actually all the way back in Pilot. We have uh, uh, Hunter comes over to, to be with Meadow before they go to school and AJ's just kind of running around the kitchen and AJ actually grabs some Shragadel and he dunks it right in the pitcher of milk uh, <laughs> that everyone is using for breakfast, which the girls <laughs> find disgusting. And I thought... That, that that actually might be our earliest food reference on the show, yeah. is, is this um, Italian pastry there for that. I, I agree. And, and also, uh, another, I don't know if this is one of the moments that's coming up, so forgive me if I step on anybody here, but talking about pastry in, in, in specific, Tony visits Pussy with a box of pastries and nobody knows anything. Mm. Like he's trying to get them yeah. to open up and maybe, you know, hey, is everything good? You have friends, pal. So pastries are a great way for Italian folks to open up. Yeah, so that was my number three. Uh, but I guess that was technically two in one, but whatever. Well, and I think when he, when, in Nobody Knows Anything, when Tony brings those nice uh, cannolis or whatever. I think um, it was cannolis. Yeah, it was cannolis. Pussy says, oh, what is it, Spinelli's? And Tony says, no, stop it, shop. What do you think? Because <laughs> <laughs> Tony went to the nice bakery. Yeah. Um, I have a few. Uh, another shout-out, just honorable mention, is I love uh, ricotta pie. Uh, yeah, the regret pie is one of mine. Absolutely, pie, yeah. yeah uh, but we'll, okay, so we'll leave that. No, um, don't. You could dive right in. Let's the regret pie conversation. Well, I know that uh, uh, Olivia turns her nose up at it because it's too fatty, and then with the low fat cheese, then she's disgusted by it. Uh, but I like it when I you know go to Mike's Pastry in Boston. <laughs> Get some nice ricotta pie. I, f I feel like we could do a whole 45-minute episode on the food Livia rejects. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think the ricotta pie scene is so great, too, because this is... um. So Livia has rejected the idea of attending the open house yeah. at the Soprano household, which is, by the way, an idea that is totally bizarre to me, perhaps yeah, we, because of my economic status. I could not fathom no, the idea no, of having an open no, house. No, know what the fuck that means. Yes, yeah, I, don't, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, show off show off the new furniture. I, I don't know. It's just a party. Yeah, I guess they're just having it's a party. It's just a party for um, no reason. So yeah. you, have an, you open your house, you come when you want, <laughs> right. right? Like, my house never looks nice enough for that, so, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my parents certainly never had one. So Livia has rejected coming, but they still brought her something from the party, and I think it's so considerate. Uh, first of all, regret pie is not easy to make. No. Um, like, sort of notoriously. My mother makes a killer regret pie. That's she does, Awesome, yeah. awesome. And, and... You know, Carmela's being so nice to bring her this pie, and she knows that she's having a problem with cholesterol or with fat, so she brings her one that's specifically low-fat, and Libya goes, ugh, just is grossed out by it, rejects it, makes her feel bad. This is after not even greeting Carmela at the door, by the way. <laughs> opens it and yeah. turns and walks back she in. She opens it and shows her her back and walks away from her. Just the, <laughs> the, 
pinnacle of rudeness. Carmilla says, oh, hi, Carmilla. Nice to see you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that regret pie scene, Paul, is is also a great moment with Carmilla because we get some of Carmilla's sharpness here, yeah. too. Mm. Um, you know, you know what you're doing. Uh, you know, Tony is, is obsessed with your happiness. Oh, uh, you know, who am I? You're his mother. You're larger than life, mm. right? Carmilla's the only one that gets it right. Yeah. Uh, it's her and Melfi how big that presence is, and that's the regret pie scene. Was that your number two moment, Jordan? Or is that your number one? That's my... Regal Pie is my number one wow, okay. moment. Um, yeah, I have one other food moment, but we'll, we'll get to it. Paul, did you have a number three? I know that Regal Pie was your honorable mention. Oh, uh, yeah, the um, antipasto that Tony and Bobby have in bed in Boca. I want to have that. <laughs> oh, Junior, oh, Junior and Bobby. Yeah, yeah I want to have... Pass me them red peppers. I want to have those red peppers. I kind of want Bobby to feed them to me. <laughs> post-coital bliss. I'm also just a big antipasto fan. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Thin God. sliced meats so and much. stuff. Oof. So. So that antipasto looks fucking indeed. delicious. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure this might be on everyone's list, but um, that last scene in Vesuvio, it's just mm. such a... You know, it, again, we, we talked about how it's this really human moment. You know, it's it's pouring out. Everybody's lost power. They come in. They're getting wet. And everybody they know is there, right? We, we've yeah. really, you know, the poor Bucos have really tried, or at least Charmaine has really tried for this place not to be a mob hotspot. And here we are with everybody and yeah. all Tony and his friends. But they do have this really wholesome moment at the table. And they're all, you know... Whatever he has is looks delicious. Oh, yeah. You know, like I'd eat anything already. Everything out of Vesuvio, the yeah. lunch they have at the Rosalie and, and uh, Carmela have too. Everything yeah. just always looks at Vesuvio so perfect. Yeah, Lily, to your point too. That last scene in Vesuvio, last scene of the series uh, of the sorry of the season is is so potent as well because we also get this sense that food is talismanic, that it somehow can hold off the darkness, right? Mm -hmm. That it unites us as a family, as a people, both families united by food in that moment. That might be the most significant food moment, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it's really terrific. Well, and, and you know, you mentioned how food is all over the Sopranos in this season. Sorry. And this season especially. <laughs> but food is such a, a cultural, I, I would say an Italian thing, but any culture has that, right? Comes together around their Comes food. together around food. It's it's such a universal thing. But when you're Italian, especially, right? You've got this delicious cuisine, so versatile with the fish, and you got pasta, and you got everything. But but that's a part of it. That's how Italians especially connect with each other. Mm. There's always going to be coffee and pastry, or there's going to be an antipasto, or you know, all of that. It's part of why I love having married into an Italian family because, ugh, the food is so great and it's such a it's such a communal piece. It's coming together over food. You're welcome. The, the, you're welcome. <laughs> the food makes it unequivocal how clear it is that David Chase is so influenced by Scorsese. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Particularly oh, yeah. in Goodfellas, when you see how important food is as a tribal concept. Uh, my favorite dinner scene in Goodfellas, I think, is when uh, they stop in at. Uh, uh, Tommy's Tommy's mother's house when they got fucking uh, they got uh, Billy Bats in the trunk yeah. and she he has to take the knife and uh, it's it's yeah, so good to your point. My number three food scene is the lobster dinner the Capos have in Meadowlands. They're just like these are like the top five guy or top four guys. Junior's the other Capo because mm. Jackie's still alive and they're all talking about the succession and, and Tony has to kind of reluctantly 
uh, pass it off uh, as like, ah, you know, I don't want any disturbance. And, and everyone's like, Tony, it's, you know, it's got to be you. I mean, Junior, whatever, you know, and they're all giving reasons why they can't do it. Yeah, the old man and Jackie, they thought, said it was you from day one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, and they're just, while they're doing it, they're just tearing these lobsters apart. And I, yeah. I love lobster. Yeah, that was my honorable, honorable mention. That's a great scene. Yeah. On my honorable mention, I do have a couple, some of these categories I do have honorable mentions because these are so hard to narrow down. My honorable mention food moment is just makes me smile every time I see it is in the episode um, Denial, Anger, Acceptance when Tony and Artie have a food fight. And, uh, you know, Tony's just had enough of him complaining and whining about his restaurant. Yeah. And he tells him, shut the fuck up about it, you depressing jerk. And Artie just comes back, the fuck do you know about it? Throws like a piece of ham at him. It just like hangs on his face for yeah. a second. You're like, oh my. And to yeah. the newly initiated to the Sopranos who don't quite understand Tony and Artie's relationship yet, you think, oh my God, is Tony going to like fucking strangle this guy? Yeah. He's just like, you motherfucker. And throws like a rice ball at him. And they have a food fight in his kitchen. That's such a fun moment. I love Artie Bucco, and uh, yes. yeah, that's just a that that that's my honorable mention. And the Capo lobster dinner in Meadowlands, is, yeah, is, is Wait, a big I think that's wonderful. So I'm gonna do my number two moment because we already discussed my number one. The regal pie was was with Paul a moment yeah. ago. Uh, my number, uh, sorry, yes, yeah, my number two. I've done my one and my three already. Is actually the the Gavadel with the duck ragu that Ooh. Artie brings to Livia uh, in I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano, yeah. uh, where Livia of course lets it slip that. Uh, Tony is the one that burned down Vesuvio. She does make uh, it rather pointedly to... That is the thing she clearly remembers in that scene. She doesn't know who Artie is. She says, oh, you used to play, you know, uh, ball with my Johnny. No, Tony. Um, (laughs) Artie's so good in that scene, too. But when the Vesuvio thing is brought up, oh, right, that's the restaurant you had and your your father had. She brings up just how important it is. It's this generational thing, and then that's the rug she's going to rip out. And again, this is another... A bit of food that Livia is disappointed with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, Cavadel with the duck ragu. It's northern. Ugh, northern. northern. Right. <laughs> it's um, so real too. Also, it was one of the things. I actually, you get to see it on the show, and it just it looked so good. I really wanted to eat that yeah. specifically. And talking about nostalgia and food in The Sopranos, uh, to to that po- to that another notch in that scene's belt in this category. Artie's connection to Livia in a simple way for such an accomplished chef. We go back a ways. You make a mean, mean PB, PB and J. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's great stuff. Yeah. It's a great scene, too. Uh, my number two is also the Cavatel with the oh, duck ragu. Yeah. My note says the duck, the Cavatel with duck ragu that Livia turned her nose up at because it's northern. Sure. <laughs> uh, I also I love that scene. It's, fu- it's so funny. It's so real. What... Artie's going through. It's also another thing I like about that scene is there is no reward for kindness on The Sopranos. <laughs> Correct. I I tried to search for some ulterior motive where Artie in going to visit this old woman is self-serving in some way, but I really just think Artie lost his own mother recently. Artie still loves Tony, and it, it, the, the poor woman. She's up there. She's alone. She's probably lonely. But as Jordan pointed out, Artie knows that he has to play this game carefully, but he really works hard to be nice to her and say, yeah. like, even even to the point of awkwardness, like, you got lots of sun in here. Like, it's so <laughs> weird that, um, but the, you know, so then the, the heartbreak at the end. Um, but yeah, I also just want to eat that duck ragu. I, can't, uh, I still can't believe that Livia looks away from it. Yeah, and to your point, Paul, from our, our uh, previous episode, an individualist, uh, we I think it was you that mentioned duck ragu, specifically, mm. uh, bringing the image of the duck that has been cooked and put into this thing mm. uh, as kind of a, 
death of family, death of that symbol of innocence kind of thing. This is almost like a last meal type situation. This is uh, very simple, but also in that episode, Carmela throws away the penne with vodka sauce. Mm. I'm going to get to that. That's my number one. Oh, really? I mean, I can't, like, because that's so... uh, It's very simple. It's a simple dish, but I love it. Another one we really see, because you actually see it pouring out into the the garbage. It looks so good. And it looks so good, yeah. My, My house is... Maybe seven minutes from that church. It's like, please just drive it right up here and drop it in my house. Don't put it in the garbage. That's your number one moment, Paul? Yes. So you both have given your two and one, so I'll give my, my, my big two here. Related to yours, though a little bit different, because it's connected in the same story thread. Uh, number two for me is Carmela's Zidi, which Father Phil admits drives him... Uh, now, we know that there's other things driving him into college. Oh, is this what he had a yen in for? College. I, I had a Jones for your big ziti. A Jones. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, she's like, oh, I got some in the freezer. Heat it up. It's just like, I love it because I'm sure Carmela always has big ziti in her freezer. You know, it's one of those things you just go there for. And Lily, my wife Lily, is an amazing, amazing cook. But I would give anything to have... Carmela's baked ziti. I'm, I'm oh, sure it's too. fucking dumb. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What a horrible... I hate Father Phil. What a horrible man. <laughs> oh, me too. Um, probably my second, like, worst character on the show. The worst in the season is obviously, I think, Coach Hauser, but I, Father Phil's down at the bottom for me, too. <laughs> Not because that actor. The actor does a fine, oh, fine also, job. But I he's just a great job, it's the, it's the corruption of the priest role. I can never stomach it. I, I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. No, Father Phil's terrible. My number one food moment was... Tony and AJ in Down Neck. Oh, the, the ice, ice cream. cream. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a lengthy chat about it during the episode and then after the episode. <laughs> oh, wait, I have to preemptively, like, not cry about it. Go on, I'm, I'm safe. Uh, I'm but safe. no, but like, just, the you know, the idea of Tony trying to fix something that was broken through an ice cream sundae. And then we had a conversation after we shut the podcast off. I want to I wanna put a pause on this for a second because I want to bring it up when we talk about some behind-the-scenes podcast business a little bit. But just the idea of a dad and a son sharing an ice cream, there's nothing more... Yeah, it's, it's, it's sweet, it's beautiful, it's a great moment. It ends an amazing fucking episode. I'm sure it's going to be on at least somebody's favorite episode list. When oh, yeah. But it's, it's a great moment in a great episode in one of the best of the season. Moments of the season for me, all, to, all around, is AJ and Tony having their Sunday at the end of Down Neck. And yeah. Chris, uh, that moment, not just as a food moment, but in the all together, is one of the things that made, for me anyway, choo- choosing top three moments in the whole season very difficult. Yeah. Because so many, sometimes short scenes, sometimes long scenes with a lot of dialogue, in that case, short scene without a bunch, s- amazingly effective. Mm. Uh, let's. This is a great way to get into conversation these top these top threes so let's roll quickly into our next one here let's just keep rolling sure um the next category we have i think is music music cues we can't talk about the sopranos in a serious way without addressing the use of music sure sopranos is unique in one in one way as far as the music goes because my understanding and again i'm not associated with the show in any way my understanding through interviews and some other sources is that david chase personally has a hand in every piece of music that is put into the show. That's normally not a series creator job, at least as far as picking every, but there's so much music in the show, so much great music in this show. And so it just, it had to be a category as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So top three music cues. Let's start with Paul, uh, since we we're going around the table here. My third one is uh, Paparazzi mm. at the and end of Pax Soprano, which is a great 
tune it's perfectly utilized and it really builds tension in this moment when the plot is moving forward even though the plot has solidified tony's position both as the de facto boss and as the underboss who is being hidden from exposure to the feds but because the feds are so close because junior can be dangerous even if he's not uh strategically always effective Mm. The, the music really underscores that and does a terrific job with it and it makes the particularly the ending of Pax Soprana I think very memorable I agree for me uh, my number three music cue is at the end of the pilot uh, we get um, this uh, we're all kind of assembled at the party all of the story beats have been told we've met all our characters we've started all our story threads and it's been such a crazy hour of television and there's so much shit going on and we get the still shot of the pool, and then the soft sounds of Nick Lowe's The Beast in Me. I just think that's a perfect, it was a perfect way to end that episode. Yeah, I agree. That's a great song. Uh, it's a great song. It's gentle. There's something kind of eerie and gentle and, and also calming about it. It's just, it's a perfect ending for that episode. And of course, you know, a great song for many of the characters in the show as well. One of my favorite uses of music, this is my number three, is actually uh, the uh, Welsh choir song, All Through the Night. Mm. Uh, there's a beautiful musical sequence that takes us out of denial, anger, acceptance, where, of course, Meadow and Hunter uh, are part of their, their choral recital. And during the recital, we get sequences of Tony arriving late to the recital and joining Carmela for the solo. That uh, goes through uh, Chris's scare. Uh, where the uh, the guys seem like they're going to shoot him, he you know soils himself, that whole business, and of course it goes through Mikey P's hit on Brendan Hijack by Jack. So good is all during that choir performance, and it was it was just terrific. It was such a cinematic sequence. It was it was beautiful, and you have this um, this uh, song about the things that happen in the night, and the moon is watching us all, and it was I thought it was just just beautiful use of music. Agreed. Number two. My number two, I actually don't have the name of the artist in front of me. It's a, a Spanish language uh, love song called Frente Frente, which is used twice in Boca mm. to oh. quite great effect. The first is when Junior and Bobby are dancing in Boca Raton, and she's messing with him, telling some jokes, and he's yeah. saying, That's my reputation you're playing with. And. This song is playing, Spanish language, passionate song about a love affair that seems to be coming apart. Yeah. And one of the key lyrics, of course, sung in Spanish is, Are you afraid to tell me the truth? And too much spoken is the key to that relationship breaking apart. Mm, And then it also plays in that terrible moment when Junior calls her names and puts a pie in her face, essentially says they're done and walks out, and you see the look of regret on his face and the music scales up again it's perfectly done um lily and i watched boca again in preparation for this uh retrospective and that scene gets me emotional every time me too yeah it's mm. it's brutal it's yeah. <laughs> and yeah great moment great use of music paul i absolutely agree my number two for music is the use of tinder sticks tiny tears in the episode isabella it just weaves through this perfectly and it just underscores the melancholy and numbness that Tony's feeling in these moments. Tiny tears make up an ocean and <laughs> just the lyrics fit 
the mood fits, the way the camera work fits the song. And then when the wind swells, the song swells, you get all these violins going, it's dramatic. It's like whoever fucking found and, and utilized that song for this was, <laughs> it, it, it was just a genius pick for a genius episode. And it's all over the episode. It's like, I, I just, I see Tony stumbling around with the five o'clock shadow in the bathrobe. And I just hear that song in my head every time I picture it. It's mm. perfect. It's great. Uh, my number two is from, of course, A Hit is a Hit, which is sort of an overtly musical episode. Oh, please be Defiler. It is not Defiler. <laughs> listen, as much as I wanted to include Defiler Visiting Day on my list, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. It's a real song. It's uh, called Nobody Loves Me But You, which mm. is a Dory Hartley song. This is a song that not a lot of people know. In fact, as I was kind of like doing a little research online, a lot of people found this song through The Sopranos. Yeah. Uh, found that song and said things like, what's the song that Chris is listening to in the back room at the Bing after he has his fight with Adriana and he's just kind of sulking? And a great moment, you know, Hesh turns around as he's walking through that office and says, now that's a hit. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was just, it was a nice button on everything that had been discussed in that scene. Also, it was a kind of a nice sensitive moment for Christopher, who, uh, I'll talk about this more later when we get to favorite moments, but I, I really enjoy Christopher in A Hit is a Hit and I like the more sensitive side of that character and that song really nicely underscores, of course, the obvious Nobody Loves Me But You as he thinks about his relationship with Adriana. Mm. Well said. Paul? Are we now at number one? We are at number, We're at number one. one. Bet your favorite music. Number one, one with a bullet. 1967 That's song it. by Cream called I Feel Free. Oh, yeah. That ends Isabella. Uh, I don't think... There are a couple of really good music cues in this season. I don't think any of the other ones touch it. It's terrific. For a number of reasons. One is what this episode has been about. As Chris pointed out, another perfectly chosen track to cover some of these scenes where Tony's lumbering around the Tiny Tears song. What then happens, of course, is that he's brought out of that funk by the attempted, quote, carjacking, unquote. What's the Winston Churchill <laughs> quote? There's nothing as thrilling as being shot at without result. So here's Tony at the end of this episode. He's there. He's alive. And when I find out who took a shot at me, I'm going to feel even better. And then this beat comes in, boom, boom. And that's and this great song with all these wonderful lyrics in it and great energy are now leading us into the last episode, but it is, it is an emotional minefield yeah. that Tony is walking into. So that the something in the combination of tension and energy and even ecstasy that is brought out by that song ending the penultimate episode, I just don't think can be beat. Paul, you said that fucking perfectly, and all I'm going to add to it is here, here, because that's my number one music choice, too. Yeah, so it was also my number one music choice. Wow. Um, so... That, that's all three of us. The only thing I will add uh, is that my runner-up or my honorable mention is uh, Jefferson Airplane's White say, Rabbit. You guys didn't bring up yeah, that, that, White Rabbit. Yeah, that brings up that uh, the flashback favorite, and Down yeah. Neck. Mm. But I do want to say uh, the 1967 Cream song that is used there I think might be intentional because it is uh, used to add flourish to a moment when he finds out who took a shot at him, you know? And the 1967 song White Rabbit is in the flashback of Down Neck. It's almost like a subtext of like, it's your mother. It's your mother. Everything's in the past. It's your mother. <laughs> Who took a shot at you? Livia did. She yeah. did it through someone else. But it's all lying there in the 1967 flashback that you used to take your pill, go back, White Rabbit. Definitely a worth, worthwhile moment to bring up. You know, guys, uh, I just realized something. What? We did not do our top three songs. Oh my god. Oh, well, all right. So, top, top three, three music. music. We top already did music. the category, but wow. we sing it now. Yeah. We did it already, and this is late. Yeah. Wow. Meow. 
<laughs> oh God! Well, that's money, Paul. That you know, that's 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 a hit. That's a hit. No, that's a hit. It is a hit. Suck on that, Richie Santini. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit. We're gonna get back to the show, obviously. That's why we're all here. But I want to talk a little bit about our podcast and our little uh, our little family here. This thing of ours. This thing of ours. That's right. So, a little bit of uh, inside baseball for you folks listening out there. I'm a first-time podcaster. I'm an actor and a writer and storyteller and many other mediums. But um, He also has a beautiful singing voice. Oh, well, thank you. It's true. Uh, great. Now I'm going to have to demonstrate that at some point. Uh, <laughs> nah, nobody wants to hear that. Good. Uh, <laughs> but we... I have to be honest, uh, we had a, a, a friend of ours who is experienced with podcasting produce our podcast for the first couple episodes, and then he had to back out for various several reasons. And I thought, we recorded like the first three episodes all in one session. And I thought when he backed out, like, oh man, this is, this is fucked where I don't know what I'm doing. So I had to learn how to podcast by doing this podcast. And it's been a hell of an experience. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Talk about our experience with the podcast, what you've enjoyed, what what has been interesting or revelatory about it, uh, your experiences being around it, Lily, and helping us behind the scenes, uh, some favorite memories specifically from our show, anything you want to talk about in relation to our podcast, The Sopranos Podcast. So I've been on a few podcasts, some of which have been mine, though I was never the editor. That's usually like my friend Mike or my buddy Evan or, or you know the few people that I've, I've podcasted with. <laughs> Um, but I, I've been a guest on a few before. This is the one where I've really gotten the most in terms of like it's a podcast like I take around with me. Like I think like, oh, I want to make sure I mention that on the show and I'll, I'll write that down. Uh, I think because there is a research component here, we tend to take things like pretty seriously. But like, I think it's fucking groovy how seriously we take it. Like you really want to deep dive into these analyses and, and you want to think like, well, what is Paul going to think of this? Or, oh, Chris mm. just mentioned that. I wonder if I can bring this up next episode. So it's become like a, a part of my life in that aspect. Also, you know, we recorded those first three episodes. I was remote for those. Yeah. I was not in the same room as you guys. And I think our, our sound quality kind of suffered for that. And in, in going forward, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to be here as much as possible. But because of like the, the rigors of the scheduling during the school year, I might not be able to be here for that. But I think we're going to go through that challenge together of trying to make sure that that sound stays consistent, I think, throughout. Right. And that might be something on my end. Where I have to get the right equipment and stuff like that because again I know nothing. I'm yeah. I'm totally new to this too in terms of my participation. Well, I'm I'm thrilled that we're going forward with this. Another thing we didn't know for sure if this was going to be just a one-off celebration of 20 years since the debut of The Sopranos, mm. or if we're going to actually, you know, pull our dicks out here and do all 86 hours. But... My dick is out right now. <laughs> my nickname's 46 long. <laughs> oh god 46 uh, inches centimeters what are we talking about? let's not get into that <laughs> but I hope neither yeah. <laughs> both bad and to answer the home question uh, seriously average is the uh, <laughs> is the answer well with that out of the way um <laughs> look i i think we're at least gonna get into season two and i'm very excited i'm, th I'm thinking about some of the episodes coming up in season two and i'm excited to go over it with you guys uh, there, there's a lot of great shit in season two yeah um, and i think we're definitely at least going forward that far but i'd like to uh, you know i think i think we at this point i almost i feel very invested in this with you guys I'm, I'm super invested this has also been like the time of my life during this whole uh, quarantine business now we started this show before the COVID. coronavirus quarantine um but 
This has been like the thing I've been looking forward to. We've been recording most of these in the summer, pretty pretty, pretty bang on every other weekend. And just being here with you guys and Lily uh, in your in your home has been so wonderful and so welcoming. And actually, let me say thank you on behalf of, of Paul and myself. Thank you for inviting us into your home in a time where a lot of people are kind of just isolating themselves totally. This has been just a wonderful thing to, to look forward to, to give hope and to bring us together about great art and great people. No, it's been a total pleasure for us too. It's what we look forward to as well. It's the most normal, fun feeling thing that has gone on during the pandemic, at least as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, I feel the same way. And then the last thing I'll say, I, I, I know I'm hogging the mic here. Um, I am the least experienced with the Sopranos. I notice this all the time because we do, of course, a pre-recording session, and then we, you know, we just stand around and talk afterwards. But you know, Paul or Chris, like you guys, will mention something. Oh yeah, in season five, when such and such and such. I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge of the show, certainly nowhere near the level of you guys. And um, it's actually been a wonderful experience to have that kind of, uh, you know, the role of like mentor and mentee with you guys, or just revisiting this piece of art that I think I did not invest as much as I should have on the first time because I was a kid. And to come back to that as, a, as an adult man in, in their middle 30s, this is a, a this is blowing my mind. It really is. Super fans of the show talk a lot about every time you come back to it, it's not only richer because the show has so many layers to it but it's richer because your life experience changes you see it through different eyeballs and i imagine like i think we were talking about how sopranos in your 30s is different than watching sopranos in your 20s and i'm sure um you know none of us here have kids but i'm sure once we have children or families of our own it'll hit on a completely different level going back a few years from now or 10 years from now and, and watching it again Paul, how, how, what's your experience been on the show so far, and how do you feel about all this? Um, 30 centimeters. Mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we're all going to go around and so, give so, our, yeah, our like penis kind of, sizes. Yeah, um, <laughs> I can't add too much, because what Jordan said, it really communes with my experience. One thing is that The Sopranos is quite rich in terms of its text. It allows us to do this deep dive, and you find new things. I think I might have mentioned this before, second only to experiencing it again for the first time which isn't really possible is being able to see it through somebody else's eyes and so when i hear what you guys have to say on it it's it's very rewarding it's super interesting and then it guides how i watch future episodes and deepens my appreciation so it's a gift i i hope and pray that the audience has half as much fun listening as we do making it because it's a joy the other joy definitely has to do with the time frame in which we're recording a lot of this is a time when things have been very uncertain and our lives as social animals during the the pandemic has been diminished and so to come here and have you guys open up your home and also to reflect on one of our last topics to eat together yes and to have that travel feeling like no this is cool and we're safe here because we're with each other is not only fun but like turned out to feel very important and uh satisfying in a soulful way yes so that's that's been my experience for this show is that in some ways it's very simple and clear what we're doing and a lot of fun and in other ways it's been life-affirming in a way that i didn't expect it to be mm, i agree yeah we made a wonderful uh sunday dinner here um, most of the time we order we you know we're in north jersey is a lot of great italian places specifically places that have awesome sandwiches pizza whatever so, you know, we, we, we do eat a lot, but we, we had one Sunday where we went all out and had like a Soprano-style Sunday dinner. Multiple Boy, courses, yeah. pasta course, 
uh, in Salah. It was the social event of the season. Yeah, it was very great. And, uh, you know, I think going forward, we want to have at least one of those every season when we record. But uh, we put pictures up on our Instagram uh, at the Sopranos podcast. We are on on social media, so you can follow us there. But, yeah, it's been been a hell of a journey. And I got to say, guys, too, like, (laughs) this is going to... I feel almost like sick for how much I love this show. <laughs> like I like I love it more than perhaps I should. It's it's so good, and it's always the thing I go to when I have an example or want to compare high art against something. I always go back to The Sopranos uh, in some way or another. I've had dreams of a seventh season where I and I'm doing nothing in the dream but watching a new season of The Sopranos, and I see it <laughs> in my head, and I've had it. I've woken up like. Oh my God! I have episodes that don't exist in my head. That's how much I I uh, love this show, and to be able to share that love with you guys and to learn new things about it through you guys is like it's it's food for me. It's like emotional food. And speaking of emotional food, there are many times throughout this podcast where we're talking about this stuff, and I get emotional not just because the drama is effective and the characters are rich, but. Um, I feel myself like welling up like oh man this is this is so good because we're touching not only on fundamental human truths in a time where everything feels like it's in flux and kind of shitty but because it just brings up memories and feelings for me one of my favorite moments recording the podcast was um, we almost like had to take a little pause for a second uh, during our down neck episode uh, when we were talking about ice cream Mm. and uh, we had a long conversation after we turned the mic off about you know, are having ice cream with our dads. Yeah. And how universal and emotional that is just in and of itself. Uh, and it's brought out a lot of fun moments like that where we, I, I, you know, just feeling something new and, and something intense. Absolutely. Well, actively trying to not get emotional here about it, but I think um, part of that is actually uh, in The Sopranos itself in my life. Uh, I think that the truth of it is, you know, I'm... I'm academic brainy type person you know that i am not the son that i think my father really wanted to have (laughs) you know he's a kind of a auto mechanic type he's really into cars his friends are all tough guys his friends are more like the people that are on the show the sopranos (laughs) and we you know he was a wonderful father continues to be a wonderful father but we have very few similar interests almost nothing overlaps so i assume that when he listens to me speak He's very bored, and sometimes he's, you know, <laughs> talking about things that I, I try to relate to, but I, I just can't. There's a disconnect. But watching The Sopranos together was something that we bonded over in my childhood, and this show, in many ways, has kind of given me that time with my father back, because now I tell him about the podcast that we're recording, and we can discuss specific episodes. Mm. You know, being a, a more peripheral member of this podcast crew, if I may be so bold... You know, I, I always love seeing my friends. We've all been friends for a very long time. And I just go live my life while you guys record. And I get to hear the pre and I get to hear the post. So I get, like, glimpses of where you're at. But I get such joy listening to the podcast each time it comes out to hear what happened while I was watching some probable garbage um, off on my own with our cat. And what's what else I love about the podcast, just speaking for myself as a listener, um, but having been friends with you guys for so long, I find myself, I listen to this in the car on the way to work, and I find myself about to chime in as if you're in the car with me, 
and it, and then I realized that you're not there and I should probably, you know, have some more coffee and, <laughs> but it's, um, it's such a joy. It's so, it's so right there. I feel like I'm right there with you guys. Um, and so it's, it's such a joy to have you guys come over every other weekend and get oh. to see my pals and, and talk about a show that I've come to love mm. more than probably any other show, you know, mm-hmm. so it's very special as a listener as well. Oh, thank you, Lily. Absolutely. So yeah. We've been affectionately among ourselves calling this the Summer of Sopranos because it's it's been like, you know, something to always look forward to. And uh, while the summer, as we record this, is coming to an end, it's a beautiful day here in North Jersey. It's it's like, you know, you walk outside and it's just that, ah, there's a light breeze. Yeah, no humidity. It's like it's, one of those borderline September-ish days. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. And what a, a an amazing way to cap it off uh, with you guys here doing this retrospective on this beautiful day in what has been a very weird but oddly fun experiment during the summer. And I just, uh, before we progress here, I just want to thank you guys sincerely from the bottom of my heart. And I look forward to doing season two with you guys. Oh, likewise. Thank you, Chris and Lily. Yes. Thank yeah. you. And Paul, you too. Oh, Thanks, God. Guys. Yeah, you guys are so good. And, and the feedback I've gotten from people, uh, not just people we know, but people who've reached out, you know, fans of the show. We, we have a, a pretty healthy listener base at this point. People have reached out and, and wrote wonderful comments on our iTunes reviews and, and sent messages and things. So this is great, and I love you guys. And, this and is awesome. uh, yeah, and thank you to the listeners who have been yes. with us th- so far. If you've made it to the retrospective, that means you made it through an entire season with us. And I know a couple of people in our lives have actually started rewatching the show so they can listen to this podcast. So mm. thank you all for sticking with us. Seriously, uh, I have put almost no advertising money into this show, and we have, uh, I was kind of surprised. I was expecting some family and friends and maybe a few folks out there searching for Sopranos content would probably find us, but we have a pretty healthy listener base here, and um, I'm really thankful for all of you for joining us, because you're a part of this conversation too, and I'm thrilled that we can kind of share and discuss this this show with all of you. It's, it's such a special piece for all of us for various reasons. And uh, this has been an honor and a joy. So please stick with us. We got a lot more to go. With that said, I think it's time for another top three. Top three. Hey, thank you all so much for joining us for this part one of two of our season one retrospective. Please join us same time, same place, wherever you get your podcasts from every other Sunday afternoon for some audio Sunday dinner with the Sopranos podcast. We got a lot of great topics to cover for next time. We're going to talk about Chris and Adriana. We're going to talk about Tony and Carmela's marriage. We're going to talk about the guys, the mob guys, Big Pussy, Paulie Walnuts, and several more of our top three favorite lists, including characters and performances, moments, and episodes. It's going to be awesome. Lily joins us again. So please come back. You don't want to miss part two of our retrospective. And that's it. We'll see you next time. I'm Chris D'Amato. This is the Sopranos Podcast. Hit us up on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, The Sopranos Podcast. Thank you all so much. Hey!